a beach in northern France and being thoroughly annoyed with one of my children. Standing on a beach in northern France and being cheesed off with one of my kids. Come to think of it, I don't really, as I look back, I don't know where the rest of my family were. We were on a beach and knowing my wife, most likely they were away searching for ice cream uh, somewhere. But at this point, it was just me and my youngest daughter and I was a bit annoyed and a bit enraged with her. You see, we had come all the way to France and here we were standing in the most beautiful place you can imagine. So you can work with me on this to imagine it. You know, a beautiful pebble beach that went on for miles. You know, and there was cliffs behind us and the sun was shining and there's this vast ocean in front of us. And what was my little girl doing? She was ignoring it all and playing in the dirt at her father's feet, ignoring all of this beauty and playing in the muck. Or so I thought. You see, on closer inspection, it turns out that what my daughter was actually doing was paying, well, analyzing almost, uh, analyzing one particular pebble that she'd picked up from the beach. And you all know how beautiful these little stones on a beach can be, don't you? Like, I'm obviously, I'm no geologist here, but they can be, you know, they can be multicolored, these little pebbles, can't they? And they can shine in the sun and they can sparkle She was paying real attention to this. And so you can see, right, that I no longer could be annoyed with her. Because can you see that we were both doing the same thing? We were both appreciating beauty, weren't we? Okay, I was taking this kind of wide-angled lens approach. I was soaking in this big vista. But she was appreciating beauty too, wasn't she? She was just zeroing in on one particular aspect of the scene. You get it? Now... Maybe you've been to a lot of Good Friday services in your time, have you? Maybe you know what these things can be like. You maybe know what a minister can do on a Good Friday service. He can take a huge big chunk of scripture to deal with. Maybe on a good, let's, let's deal with the passion. Let's deal with the whole chapter of scripture on Good Friday. Well, this morning, just now, what I want you and I to do is follow after my little girl. And I want you and I to zero in on one particular aspect of the beauty of redemption. And it is a little detail that is so critical and so key that has been recorded by each of the three synoptic gospels. And so, what is that little detail? You cry back at me, do you? It is this fact. That friends, it was dark at Golgotha. Now, you've heard that before, have you? Consider it again. You may have read it a thousand times. Consider it again as your Savior hung on that wooden beam that it was not sunny at Golgotha. Now, it wasn't overcast. It wasn't rainy. It wasn't cloudy. Consider it again that it was pitch black and black at the cross. Now, the intention here is really to think about the spiritual meaning of that darkness. Do you see what I mean by that? The intention just now is not for us to think about the logistics so much. What caused the darkness? But actually to think about what the darkness tells us about the the nature and the manner of Jesus' death 
But that said, I think it would probably be leaving too, too many questions unanswered if we didn't just, just try to address some of the questions we might have, some of the practical matters about this darkness. So this is what I'm going to do. Let's just begin by me throwing out some brief introductory remarks about this darkness. So let's see if we can get these introductory remarks. The first is this, that at the cross it was dark when it should have been really really bright. So if you've got your Bible there, have a look at verse 33 with me. Let's look at it together. You got it? Verse 33. You see what we're told? Look at the the time references. So we are told that at the cross of Christ, it was dark from the sixth hour. And you see when it ends. So it ends. So it's the sixth hour to the ninth hour. Now, if you know your Jewish calendar, as I'm sure we all know fluently our Jewish calendar. What do you know then? You know that that darkness fell on the land. And it fell at noon. So darkness comes across the land. And it, and it comes across the land at midday. Now, will you work with me on that for a moment? Would you linger on that for a moment? What does that tell you? I mean, think about it for a second here. That when the Middle Eastern sun should have been at its highest point in the sky. Some of us have been to hot countries before. Like, but think about that. Like, the, when the Middle Eastern sun should have been at, like, blinding and intense in its brightness, what happens at that point? Right then, suddenly, darkness falls. So, it's dark when it should have been bright. Let's, let's work again. Here's another introductory remark. Most likely, it was dark in Judea alone. See, read on with me if you've got your Bible there. Read on. What does Mark now tell you? He tells you that darkness came across. What's the geographical reference he gives? Darkness came across the whole land. And you probably know what some people say about that, do you? Some people would say that that means there that at the cross of Christ, darkness enveloped the globe. Like some commentators, some good people We'd say that at the cross of Christ, suddenly darkness engulfs all of the world. I don't think that's right. It might be right. I don't think it's right. You see, the Greek word that's used there, it can refer to this huge, mighty area. But the word that's used there could also refer just to the immediate area. And so do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to wheel John Calvin in here. I'm going to stand along. Say John Calvin, because I love what John Calvin says about this. You gotta get this and nothing else. Get this. Calvin says this. That while the sun did shine elsewhere, that Judea alone was plunged into shadow and why? Listen to what Calvin says. It was plunged into shadow, Judea alone, to make this event and to make this cross more notable. So we, we all with me thus far? We got it. No one's plunged into the darkness of sleep thus far. I'm sure we're, we're, we're with it. It's dark when it should be really bright. Most likely it's dark in Judea alone. And then the last of these introductory remarks, friends, it was dark at the cross by supernatural means. See, I think it's probably fair for me to say that throughout the centuries, a lot of people have been distracted by the mechanics of this portion of scripture. You know, distracted by what caused 
the darkness. If you've done any reading on this whatsoever in your time, you know that there's very little in history that's written about the spiritual meaning of the darkness. And there's reams and reams of material about what caused the darkness. You know, like all these commentators say, oh, was it an eclipse? And then other commentators say, oh, no, it's a Sirocco, it's a sandstorm. And they go back and forth and they talk about it. Well, not that I think it's all that important, but I want to suggest it was neither of those things. You see, in Luke's gospel, Luke's recording of this, what he does is he suggests there was an incredible intensity to this blackness that fell over Golgotha. Incredible intensity. Can I read to you what Luke says about it? He says this, that at Calvary, now listen to the words, the sun's light failed. It does not all suggest to you first an immediacy, but also an incredible intensity to this darkness. And you know as well as I do that neither an eclipse or a Sirocco went a sun. That's not going to cause that level of intensity. What have we got here? We have got simply a supernatural event. We have here, listen, we have here the hand of Almighty God. And because of that, I wonder if you in here would agree with this sentiment just now. Would you agree with this? That this darkness over the land must have been terrifying. Don't you think so? I mean, imagine a farmer just outside Jerusalem. And he's plowing his field in the midday sun. He's just about to stop for a break in some sh- shade. And, and then suddenly he's plowing and suddenly everything goes black. Or what about Pilate? Imagine it, walking about in his mansion and he's wrestling with his conscience and he's battling with himself and then suddenly everything is plunged in the shadow. Can you imagine that? And if you can't, what about your Lord? Hmm? On that cross, not just mocked and not just abused and not just ridiculed think of it now having all come at him from all sides these voices of abuse and come at him how they come at him through the dark through the black so what we see a few introductory remarks let's get to the good stuff shall we let's get to the good stuff Let's get to the question, what does this darkness, this blackness at Golgotha tell us about our Savior's death? What does it tell us about the atonement? What does it tell us about the nature of the cross? What I'm going to do here is this. What I'm going to do is suggest three very brief things about what this darkness tells us about Calvary. Three things. Now, each of these things, I think they stand side by side. I think they work together. The, each of these three things about the darkness, I think, is equally true if you look at the scope of the biblical data. So you with me? Let's go for the first of these. The darkness at Golgotha, I think, shows us the significance of the cross. If you're getting notes, get it. The darkness of Golgotha shows us the significance of the cross. One of my favorite films of all time is the 2004 movie, The Day After Tomorrow. Have you seen The Day After Tomorrow? There's a few perplexed looks already. The Day After Tomorrow is your kind of typical apocalyptic type nonsense. 
where what's happening is global warming at this point is causing all these natural disasters that are threatening the end of the world. Even by that, you probably appear, if you're not, it's not Citizen Kane that we're dealing with here. It's real bubble gum for the brain the day after tomorrow. That said, there's a good moment in it. There's a moment in the film where, and try and get this, try and follow it, where scientists are trying to show the authorities, the government, that unique rises in sea temperatures are going to have disastrous knock-on effects, okay? So what do the scientists do there? I mean, they've got to get to the government. So what they do, if you've seen the film, you know this, they burst into the Pentagon, as you do, burst into the Pentagon with a laptop, and they go at the governor, senators, whoever it is, they put the laptop in front of the senators, they open it up, and on the laptop, they have all of the usual sea temperatures around the world. You know, what it would be like, 1983, 1984. They've got all of the usual sea temperatures. But then they have the present sea temperatures, these unique sea temperatures. What's happening? These scientists have caught them flashing on and off on the screen. You get the idea? There's all these reams of data, all the normal sea temperatures, but these unique sea temperatures, they're flashing on. And they're, they're saying to the government, they're saying to the senators, this is... Look at the flashing light. This is an unprecedented event. This is an unprecedented moment in history. My friends, if you're following, do you not think for a moment, do you not see that there is something similar happening here at Golgotha? Do you follow? That in order to alert humanity to the very uniqueness of the cross... What is occurring? It is not that light is going on and off at Calvary. Light is not flashing at Calvary, but to alert humanity to the unprecedented nature of this event. What occurs? Light is completely removed. Now, you and I have to be really careful here because lots of poets and novelists down the years, what they've done, they've loved this idea you know, uh, the natural world alerting humanity to the uniqueness of Christ's death. They love this. So what they do is they attribute this darkness to Mother Earth. You know, that's the idea that such is the significance of this death. That it's like Mother Nature has withdrawn her light. And we in here know that is utter nonsense, don't we? We know this is God at work, but... Is it not because of that all the more remarkable to you? Think about it for a moment, for a moment. That such is God's concern that humanity look to that cross. What does God do? It's as though the Father plucks the sun from the sky. It's as though he has at that moment disrupted the cosmos. Please, would you listen to these words? Please. That just as God the Father marked a unique birth at Bethlehem, with a bright star. What does he do? He marks a unique death at Calvary with a blackened sun. And do you not see why? All to alert humanity, all to alert the church, all to alert you and me to what this most unique of moments, this unparalleled, unprecedented death, And I I think because of that, there is real and true application for you. If you're in this room as a Christian this morning, 
Is that you? Are you trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation? Is that you, friends? Then I have a question for you. At this point in your life, are you functionally ignoring the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you, do you see what I mean by that question? That functionally, practically ignoring the cross of Christ? Has it been, Christian friend, a long, long, long time since you simply stopped and pondered and meditated upon the work of atonement? Has it been, ask yourself this, has it been a long time since you just sat at home and praised God and worshipped God and simply thanked God for sending his son to die in such a manner for you? Or is it even worse than that for you, Christian friend? Are you failing even to tell people about this most unique of events? Are there parents in this room just now who are failing to teach their children the theological significance of this history-defining time? Is that true of us? If so, consider what we're seeing here. That God was so concerned that you might look time and time and time and time again across what has he done. He's extinguished the light of the cross. So we see that the darkness shows us the significance of this unique event. Secondly, we see that the darkness at Golgotha shows us the sorrow of the cross. The sorrow of the cross. I'm standing up here. Do you know what I, you know, what I would love to know? I would love to know who's here. I'm a nosy man by nature anyway, but I would love to know what churches are represented in this room this morning. I do not know. So you have to tell me afterwards. We see we've sent out invites and so forth and good folk at IPC have done the same and we've had some responses, some naughty ministers not responding. Um, So I do not know who is in the room really this morning. What I do know, most likely, is that you... Good people are most likely theologically uh, literate and switched on people. Judging by the uh, churches that are invited and getting together, you good people, you know your Bibles well, I'm sure. So, when I speak to you just now of the last days, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? You know that in Reformed circles, when we talk about the last days, We're talking about that period of time from Christ's first coming until his second coming. Do we know this? These are the last days, if you like, you know, from from the cross of Christ to the consummation, you know, from Christ's earthly ministry to that time when Christ Jesus comes. We know that, right? Don't we? Now, why am I talking about the last days? Well, friends, I think there's a portion of Old Testament scripture that speaks about the last days. And it's a portion of scripture that should color how you and I understand this darkness that falls on Golgotha. Did everyone get that? Portion of the Old Testament speaks about the last days that should really inform how we understand this darkness at Golgotha. So I'm going to do what I very rarely do normally. And I'm going to ask you to turn to another portion of scripture with me really briefly. Just quickly, let's look at it. It's Amos chapter 8. And so I will give you the page number. It's on page 770. So Amos 8, quickly turn there, page 770. Let me hear the symphony of Christians 
looking up a text in their Bible, turning those pages. Amos 8. And as you look it up, let me tell you what is happening in Amos chapter 8. It's, it's like a mountain range, Amos 8. I've just been in Scotland on holiday, so I'm all over the rivers and mountain illustrations. So Amos chapter 8 is like a mountain range. We've all seen a mountain range. We all know what a mountain range looks like from afar, don't we? We know that very often it looks like there's mountains that are sitting side by side together. If we look at it from afar, right? Two mountains side by side. What happens if you approach that mountain range? You find that actually those two mountains that looked like they were sitting next to each other, there's a bit of depth, right? They're actually miles apart. We know this. That's what you're dealing with in Amos 8. See, ultimately, Amos 8 has in view the final judgment and that last day, the time when Christ shall come and judge. That's what is ultimately in view in Amos. Here is what I'm suggesting to you, that there's depth in Amos 8. And though, yes, the final judgment is in view, that before that, Amos has in view the very cross at Golgotha. That here is prophecy also of the cross of Christ. Do you believe me? Have a look at verse 9. Amos is speaking of a terrible day, and it's a day of judgment. But look how he speaks about it. It's a day of judgment. A day not only when this earth will be darkened, when it's supposed to be in broad, bright light. Look at the chrono, look at the time reference at it though. Do you see it? It is a time when the earth, a time of judgment when the earth will be darkened at noon, at midday. So everyone here is with me, right? Surely the cross of Christ is in view here. Now, this is where I'm going with this. What I've skimmed over here is what verse 10 says. Verse 10 calls this a day of mourning. This cross of Christ, a day of grief and sorrow, a day of mourning. So there's a question that naturally arises for you and for me. This question, who is it that mourns at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ? Who is it that sorrows? When this darkness falls, and I do beg you to listen to this, and I need you to think it through, and I need you to chew over it, I suggest to you that what this darkness at Golgotha shows you is the very mourning of Almighty God. That what this darkness at Golgotha points you to is the Father's sorrow death of his dearly beloved son. Now, does that sound really controversial to you? After all, our confession, it says that our God is without parts and without passions. So the idea, this idea that nothing in creation can evoke an unexpected emotional response from God. Has everyone got that? There's nothing in creation that can impose unforeseen pain on God. 
But you know your Bible. You know theology. Think about the covenant of redemption. This at Calvary is not unexpected to God the Father. Is it? This at Calvary is not unanticipated sorrow and mourning. It is planned. It is thought through. And if you doubt it, look at the end of verse 10. Amos 8. Look what is said. Scripture says that on this day, when the sun will be darkened at noon, how is the morning there described? Do you read the words? How is it described? This is morning like that for an only son. And I think if you are a child of God, that should knock you flat on your back. It should knock you off your feet this morning because consider how much God must love you. What has God done for you, Christian friend? To win you salvation, to claim you as his own. What has God the Father done? He has willingly undergone a time of true and real and genuine sorrow. And where do we see that sorrow? We see it in the gloom of Golgotha. So we see in the blackness the significance of this cross. We see the sorrow of this cross. And then we close, because I know it's hot in here. (laughs) We close thirdly with the fact that the darkness at Golgotha shows us the sin-bearing of the cross. Make sure you get that. The darkness of Golgotha shows you the sin-bearing of the cross. Now, I've just puffed you up, haven't I? I've just said that uh, people gathering here, that you're good theologically-minded, biblically-literate people. So, with that in mind, what I'm about to say is probably not going to surprise you all of that much, or certainly not going to surprise most of you. I'm going to suggest this, that this darkness of Golgotha, it points you to the anger of God. It points you to the fact that God was filled with rage and fury at Golgotha. That doesn't surprise you, does it? Not most of us, because what do we know? We know that all the way through the Bible, when you see darkness, that very often that is associated with the judgment of the Almighty God. You know that, don't you? Darkness speaks of the judgment of God. We see that in Deuteronomy, we see it in Joel, we see it in Micah, we see it in Zephaniah, and I could go on and could go on. So it doesn't surprise you that this darkness says that God was angry and filled with wrath. Now, What might surprise some in this room just now is with whom? I'm going to say and suggest God was angry. Some of you might be new to church. You have a day off and you've been invited by family or friends. And this might surprise you who I say God is angry at because throughout the centuries, many really good commentators have said this. They've said that the darkness shows us that God was angry with men. That's quite a good idea, isn't it? It's quite a nice idea. The fact that darkness falls at Golgotha because God is turning his face away in horror, abhorrence at what humanity is doing to the only righteous one, to his very son. Do you see the idea? God angry with men. Do you think that's right? If it's right, I don't think that's at all. Because you all remember what our first reading was this morning. Do you remember it? Boys and girls, do you remember what the first reading was? Yep. Good. Reverend Perkins came up 
and he read Exodus chapter 10. And we know that story, don't we? Just before the Exodus, what happens? God acts in judgment over Egypt, doesn't he? What's that ninth plague? You remember it now, don't you? The ninth plague, God sends a darkness. Remember how it was described, even? A darkness that can't be felt, and he sends it over to the Egyptians. You remember it, right? At that Passover time, you remember it, right? Why does he do it? God sends that darkness over the Egyptians as a sign of the curse that was upon the land. And if you've heard not a word that I've said this morning, if you've heard nothing else, listen to that. Surely you see the primary reason that darkness fell at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why did darkness fall? Because what was happening at the first Passover was happening at the last. I mean, God was acting in anger, not just over Jews, not just over Romans, what was happening in that darkness? Why did darkness fall? Friends, isn't it staggering? God was punishing, acting in judgment over his only son. And why? Why? Galatians 3. Because there the Lord Jesus Christ was becoming a curse. For whom? He there was becoming a curse for for us. And here, the Christ becoming a curse for you. And you know how we very often handle this in in churches, right? We often think about that from the Father's perspective, don't we? From the Father's point of view. How the Father's wrath had to be satisfied and His justice contained. I urge you to consider just from what anger and wrath must have been like for Jesus. And do you see it? I mean, on that cross, for you, He was enduring hell. Isn't that what we're dealing with this morning? Isn't that the very outer darkness that the Lord Jesus Christ spoke about and prophesied? Isn't that it? Like in becoming sin for us. What does he know at that moment? He knows a separation for the very first time in his whole life. And what is the separation? Think about the darkness. What is the separation? It is a separation from the God in whom there is no darkness at all. What is this gloom at Calvary? Don't you see It's a picture for you. It is a visual illustration of that spiritual dereliction that Jesus knew. That dereliction Christ verbalized. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Don't you marvel anew at the fact it was dark? Because it was dark because of the greatest paradox of all time that there in the gloom, God the Father was pouring out his wrath on the son he loved so much. And he was doing it. He was doing it for you, Christian friends. So I end this morning by speaking to two people in this room. First, I speak to you, the Christian, this morning. And I ask you to do this. As you leave this building, and as you make your way home, will you not rejoice in this tiny little detail that you've got in front of you? Are you ready for the detail? The fact we are told that at the ninth hour, light returned to the land.
you, if you're a Christian, surely you see the implication and the joy of that for us. What does that tell you, Christian friend? That the darkness was lifted, that darkness of judgment and light returned. What does it tell you? It tells you, you are saved. The darkness is over. The judgment is finished. God's wrath and anger at your sin has been entirely and forever satisfied. We've been made right with God. It became light again. But then I speak to the other person in here. The person who is not a Christian. And if that is you, you just consider these things. Consider, first of all, that if you are outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, that that curse of sin is still upon you before God. It is not on Christ. It is on you. You consider that, and then you consider this, though it gives me no pleasure to say it to you, that unless you repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ in death, when you die, and that will come, you will face the punishment for your sin. And you will face it not for three hours. You will face that punishment for your sin forever and ever and evermore. And what God does today in place through his preached word, he offers you salvation and he offers you forgiveness. You can be saved. So surely on this Good Friday morning, you come to the Lord Jesus Christ and you do so on bended knee because there is something that all of the Christians in this room know for sure. Let me misuse John's gospel for a moment. The light shines in the darkness. What do we know? The darkness has not overcome it. Friends, let us bow our heads and worship our God. Lord, what a mystery it is when we look in the dirt and the muck and the sand of our own lives and we see our filthiness and our immorality and our rebellion, what a mystery it is that the Lord Christ, the pure and holy one, would become sin and sin for us. We thank you this morning for the message of the cross and we rejoice as the children of God that on the ninth hour, light returned. Lord, we praise you and we worship you for the atoning work of Golgotha. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.